Well, we're going to work through the second part of chapter 16 this morning. Uh, so our focus is going to be on verses 14 to 23. And, uh, and if you remember, last week we dipped into these verses a little bit, just addressing the fact that it begins in a way that is a little bit troubling to us in verse 14 there, where we have uh, the, the narrator telling us that the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and then an evil spirit from the Lord came and tormented Saul. Uh, so clearly the immediate trouble we had there is that an evil spirit from the Lord is com- coming to trouble Saul. We wonder how can these two elements be present together in such a way, an evil spirit from the Lord, it seems uh, incompatible to us. And to, so we took the time last week to work that out for our own uh, clarification, at least as, as best we could. And so we won't work uh, through all that again this morning, but it might just help to refresh ourselves in those two affirmations that we made from Scripture as we come to this passage. The first one was that we affirm from the Bible uh, that God is always perfectly good and righteous in all He does. So that's something we always have to keep in our minds. And then secondly, we also affirm from the Bible that, that the Lord does not perform evil, but evil elements are under His command in order to bring about His purposes. In other words, God is, God is totally sovereign over all things in such a way, uh, when we put it more theologically, that good is always attributable to Him, but evil uh, is only attributable to those secondary causalities. Uh, so, so in the case of Saul here, the righteous exercise of God's sovereignty is displayed in the fact that he's actually coming uh, to Saul in judgment in this way, and he's, doing, and, he's, and he's affecting this judgment by sending an evil spirit uh, to torment uh, rebellious King Saul. So we worked through that last week. Uh, this week, uh, we're not going to spend time on that again, except to notice the narrative flow now of verses 14 to 23. So if, if we preached a little more theologically last week, trying to fill in some gaps there, this week we're returning to a more expositional format in that we're going to work through the, the flow of the narrative here. And, uh, and we're going to do so recognizing that even with some complexities that are reflected in this, in this section, it really brings us back to the very basics of of what we understand about the gospel. And so we'll see that, we'll see that play out as we go through it today. Um, so verses 14 to 23, that will be our, our section, and we'll set the context in this way. Um, beginnings tell us a lot. So, so an account of how things got started always communicates a great deal of information that's really very essential to our understanding in a lot of different ways. So, so uh, to reference this in literature, we know in Lord of the Rings that to really understand Gollum and all the tragedy of his character, to really know him, you, you have to know he was once in the beginning a regular hobbit named Smeagol, who was one day carried away by a powerful desire to have this one precious ring that he really wanted. To really know Gollum in his current tragedy, we have to understand where things began, ultimately, with this, with this Smeagol character. Um, and, so, and so origins are important, they're crucial in stories, but, but we know that origins and beginnings are bigger than just filling in the details of the best stories, because understanding how things started or where things began is a, is a uh, meaningful element in any kind of new relationship we may be fostering. We know this just interpersonally. Uh, so if we're getting to know somebody, it doesn't take too long for us to get back to the, back to the beginning with them. We, we want to know where they're from. We want to know maybe how they met their spouse if they're married. We want to know uh, something about their, their family, their upbringing, those kinds of things. As we're getting to know somebody without really even thinking about it, if we're, if we're engaging in a meaningful way or if they're engaging with us, pretty soon we're sitting over a cup of coffee or we're sharing an activity together and we're talking about how, how things got started in our life. Where did we come from? That's part of us knowing each other well, 
because understanding how things start is critical if we're really going to, to engage meaningfully. And as, as we come to the second half of 1 Samuel 16, uh, something we discover is that we really are right in the midst of an origin story. Uh, chapter 16 is the beginning of the story of King David. And we saw this start to play out in the first half of the chapter last week where David was anointed as king of Israel. So uh, we know prior to this that King Saul had been the people's choice for king. Saul had been a disaster. Ultimately, he was rejected by God as king. And while Saul uh, refused to yield to that reality, remember Samuel came with that prophetic word and told him, the Lord has rejected you as king. But while uh, Saul failed to, to yield to that reality, he wanted to persist in being the ruler. That didn't stop the Lord's purposes from continuing uh, because Samuel the prophet was then sent to anoint a new king. And this time, it wasn't going to be a king of the people's choosing, but it was going to be a king after God's own heart. Uh, David is anointed, and he's the king uh, that that is that is uh, the king of God's the God's choosing uh, of God's choosing. He's now anointed. He's empowered. All of these things uh, to serve as as the king of Israel. Uh, but we know from that first half that that can't be the whole origin story because while we've been told that David is anointed king, we still don't know how things are really going to start for David. Uh, Samuel, you remember how hesitant he was to anoint David to begin with because, like we read back in verse 2, he's actually afraid that if Saul finds out that he's anointed a new king, Saul's going to come and kill Samuel, and probably David too for that matter. So that with Saul still existing in this kind of royal position, with him refusing to, uh, to give up his position, uh, there, there remains this tension. How is David going to come to the throne? How are things going to begin for him? Saul's still in the royal court. Saul's still publicly recognized as the ruler of, of Israel. He's still got the army at his disposal. Uh, so, so what's going to happen? Dave, David is king in God's sight. He's king according to God's purposes. But how is all this going to play out as things get started? And it's that question that starts to be answered in our verses today as we have the beginnings of King David. We have this kind of origin story of, of, of how things start for God's uh, choice, for God's appointed king. And, and while what's here is extremely essential, if we're going to properly understand the rise of King David, what's here is also extremely essential for understanding the rise of the final king that God chooses for His people. We understand, actually, that the narrative picture here becomes critical, and, and, we, and we keep that in mind as we go forward to the New Testament and we find Jesus speaking about His own ministry. And we remind ourselves of this regularly, but when Jesus is speaking about His own ministry to the religious scholars of the day, one thing that He's holding them accountable for not understanding is seeing Him for who He is when He arrives on the scene. So Jesus says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But what is the scriptures that have testified to me? So Jesus appears on the scene. He holds the religious scholars, the biblical scholars, the teachers of the day accountable for not recognizing him when he shows up because the Old Testament has been pointing his direction all along. And one of the biggest ways the Old Testament points in Jesus' direction is through the paradigm of Israel's monarchy, through the leadership of Israel. Uh, we see that with Paul when he explains the gospel in a very succinct way in Romans chapter 1. He connects the coming of Jesus with the fact that he came as a descendant of David. When Matthew includes the genealogy in, in, in uh, his gospel, he speaks about Jesus coming in the line of David. We find the same thing going on in, in the preaching in Acts. The fact that David is God's choice king serves as a kind of paradigm 
thrusting us forward so that we ought to be able to properly recognize Jesus as God's ultimate choice king when he appears on the scene. And when we see that playing out in a passage like this today, very evidently, just as we think about that question that we can, that we can begin this chapter with, as we think about how will things begin for the Lord's king? How, how are things going to start for the one God has said is going to be the ruler of my people? That's a question that will play out in David's life very historically and, and, and evidently. And that's also a question that ultimately prepares us to see Jesus Christ properly for who he is when he appears on the scene of history. And so we're going to, we're going to gather this uh, study under that question, how will things begin for the Lord's choice king? And as we do that, ultimately we'll see that we're, we're very much compelled toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll feel that even as we, as we begin with the momentum of, of the narrative here. So... What we're going to do is we're going to begin with verses 14 to 16, and the first thing that we're going to see is that things begin for the Lord's choice king in a situation or in a context of God's judgment, in the context of God's judgment. Uh, and it's this judgment component that we see right away there in verse 14 where that exchange takes place. We spent time on it last week. We're in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord leaves Saul and an evil spirit is sent to Saul instead. So there's this exchange that takes place, and, and, and this kind of exchange um, takes us back uh, not only to Saul's own beginning as king, where the Spirit of God came upon him back in chapter 10, but it also takes us back to the trajectory of failure uh, in, in the context of faithfulness that Saul has demonstrated all the way through. Saul, instead of proving himself to be a king who will follow the Lord's uh, directives, who will uh, yield to the Word of God himself, instead of being that kind of king, Saul has proved himself time and time again to be a king who uh, wants to do things his own way. So much so that by the time we get into chapter 15, uh, which is kind of the climax of Saul's failure, what we find in chapter 15 is that Saul wins a battle. Wins, we actually have to put that in air quotes because he was even disobedient in his winning of a battle. But Saul wins a battle, and then on the other side of that battle, we're told that instead of building a monument to the Lord, as a righteous person would do, thankful for the Lord's gift of victory. Samuel does that back in chapter 7. Instead of Saul building a monument to the Lord, praising him for his delivering kindness in war, instead, we're actually told literally in Hebrew that Saul builds a monument to his own hands. Saul builds a monument to his own hands. So he is so far from the Lord that instead of thanking God, instead of yielding to the Word of God, he is simply interested in elevating himself. And we see that even in his pretense toward religion at the end of chapter 15, where he just wants Samuel to come back and make some sacrifices with him. Samuel, if you'll follow me to worship, you know, that will keep up appearances with those who are concerned. That'll keep my poll numbers up in the religiosity of Israel as they see the prophet is, is kind of uh, okaying my, my, my religious worship. All Saul is interested in is maintaining his own uh, little royal standing. So in Saul, we find this one who's rejected God completely, and as a result, what's happened? Well, God has rejected him as king, and he's now under the judgment of God. So, so our section starts finding Saul in this situation where he's very evidently under God's judgment. He's, he's rebelled, and now this evil spirit from the Lord is tormenting him. And, and, and later on, as we go through these chapters, especially in, in chapter 18 and 19, as readers, we're actually going to see some of the effects of this evil spirit on Saul play out uh, in terms of his paranoia, his rage, these kinds of things. We'll get to that in chapters 18 and 19. Uh, but right here in verse 15, 
uh, while we're not given more details about, about the effect of this evil spirit on Saul, it is very clear that the effects of the evil spirit on Saul are evident to those who are around Saul. They, they see what's happening here. And so Saul's servants there, they say to him that, that, it, that it's obvious an evil spirit is tormenting you. We see this is happening, and we need to get some help. And then what is this help going to be? Well, verse 16, we need to have someone come in and play music for you so that when an evil spirit comes, you can be helped to feel better. Now, this is one of those very interesting places in the Old Testament where, where we find a, a, kind of, a kind of practical spirituality that, is, uh, that, that can be very effective for us. Not, not unlike, do you remember in, uh, in the story of Elijah when Elijah struggling with extraordinary discouragement after Ahab's failed to, to be any better than he was before uh, the whole prophets of Baal episode and Elijah's extremely discouraged and he says, I might as well die. Just take my life, Lord. My ministry's pointless. And, and what does the Lord do for him? Does he give him some extraordinary vision of the glories of God and do all of these things? No, he gives Elijah some food and tells him to take a nap. You need to just sleep a little bit and have a good meal, Elijah. Things will be better when you wake up from your nap. It's very practical, isn't it? And this is one of those areas where we have to be careful, but there's some practicality here for us too. So, so I want to do just a little bit of an aside here. We're not going to take a bunch of time to get into a theology of evil spirits or anything like that. Um, and one of those reasons is we remember in the screw tape letters how C.S. Lewis makes the point in the preface, and I'll, I'll quote what he says. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. Remember how he says this? He says, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Right? So then Lewis goes on to say, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. It's a very insightful comment that, that, that Lewis makes there. So we don't want to pretend evil spirits don't exist, and we don't want to get carried away with an unhealthy interest in them, so we won't. But as an aside, here it is noteworthy to point out that, that the effects of this evil spirit on Saul have, have become visibly noticeable. Uh, so, so, so he's clearly a troubled person. His servants can see that in his life. This is a practical word. Spiritual harassment is actually very physical in his life. This is a practical word here, and we, we, need, we, we need to understand this. So, so they're seeing this manifestation of, of spiritual uh, depression, whatever we want to call it, this evil spirit affecting Saul. And the, and, the, and, the, and the servants say, you know what, we need to get some good music playing in here for Saul. We need something to bring him relief. There's the spiritual aspect, but this, out here in our physical world, we need to do something to help bring him out of this. So for all we could say here, at least we can point out that we don't ever want to divide the reality of our lives in such a way that, that the physical and the spiritual are totally separated. You know, we, we can have a tendency to do that, where there's the spiritual stuff of my life over here, here's the physical stuff of my life over here. But even a passage like this demonstrates the wholeness of our humanity as people. Right? Saul is tormented, obviously spiritually, and the effect is both noted and the remedies prescribed in the realm of Saul's physicality. You see, and it's effective too. By the end, he's he's relieved as David comes and plays. So, so his servants see something is wrong, and they prescribe some relieving music. Now, now again, there's no need to get strange about all this, but it is practical. It is practical, not in a way where we're looking around every tree for demons or something of that nature. 
But we can note that in the midst of discouraging circumstances, after all, Paul tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers in the heavenly realms. So in the context of discouragement, in the context of temptation, in the context of feeling pressed and downtrodden in our lives, whatever uh, those, those effects may be, we're heavy of soul. And we ought to be able to take a lesson from something like this and realize that in the economies of God, of the way God has put us together as humans, there is a kind of physical relief that comes in the context of allowing good music to drive back the darkness in our lives. It's just a wonderful example of, of something that's going on here. We think, of, we think of the discouragement that can set in at times. For me, that's a very real thing. And the songs I sing during that time, or songs I don't sing, will have an enormous impact on my countenance and the way I either change or don't change. It's really interesting to think about the fact as we, as we face temptation, as we face discouragement, these different things. If you go for a drive by yourself 10 minutes into sitting, singing one of the City of Light songs or, or a Fernando Ortega song that we sing on Monday morning, it is amazing how the countenance changes. And that's to not to spiritualize this in any kind of strange way except to say it is noteworthy that there is a connection that's made in the Scriptures in this way and the, and the, and the light of the truth that we sing has the effect of driving away the darkness that can sometimes affect us very dramatically. Well, we know David's going to come in and sing, and what does David sing? Well, David sings his songs. He sings his psalms, so many of them that he's, he's the author of in our book of psalms. And so, and so this is just something practical that we, can, that we can keep in mind. You get discouraged this week. You're facing doubt this week. You know, you go put on uh, the Gettys in Christ alone and just see what happens after 15 minutes of that song being on repeat and you singing it. Uh, maybe to the discouragement of your family, but you're singing it loudly in your in your kitchen. These things are these things are useful. So that's just an aside, um, but but we see that playing out here in our text. We don't ever want to divorce spirituality from physicality, and and one remedy for darkness is is music that reflects the light. We need to be aware of that. Um, so that's an aside, but but it's but it's worth mentioning. Um, back to the main thing here. What's going on is that Saul is under the judgment of God. We know that. And that judgment has come because Saul is determined to continually rebel against God and live as the king of his own life. All those things we know from back in chapter 15. And, and what is the end of all of that? Well, it's not peace in Saul's life. It's not fullness of joy. It's not flourishing. It's actually torment. Because that's uh, what sin gets us no matter how we slice what's going on here. We, we think being in charge of ourselves will be wonderful. How does it end? It doesn't end wonderfully. It ends with us uh, deep down in a condition of trouble, in a condition of torment. I, I, I want to disregard the Lord so I can be free and do what I want. And we think that doing what we want so often will bring the peace and the rest and the fulfillment and all of those things that we long for. And where does it ultimately leave us? Well, it, it leaves us right where Saul is, in a, in a tormented condition. Uh, it, was, it was Kierkegaard. I ran across this statement uh, from Kierkegaard this week who who understood this to a certain degree when he said the deepest despair occurs when we are unconscious of being in despair, which is exactly what's happening here with Saul, where we actually see the servants have to help him see his trouble. It actually takes us back to the beginning of Saul's narrative. Remember when he can't find the donkeys, he can't deal with that whole donkey situation? Saul can't, and what does he have? Well, a servant has to give him these steps all along the way. Saul, Saul can't deal with that. Get here to this, same, this much more difficult situation in Saul's life, and he can't see a way through it. You know, he, he's just gotten to this point where, where he's uh, unconscious of any kind of solution to being in this sort of despair. So you have an evil spirit. We need to get you some help. And, and they, have to, they have to direct him in that way. 
And so we, we recognize that, uh, that this condition that is reflected in Saul is ultimately a picture of, of God's judgment on rebellion against him. It can take different forms. It can look in different, uh, look different ways, but, uh, but it plays out around us. It plays out in our own heart, uh, tormented by things that are produced when we uh, set our hope in hopeless things, even if that uh, hopeless thing is myself and my ambitions. We can find ourselves in a, in, a, in a dark place, and that's where Saul's at, and that's where all humanity is, persisting in, in turning our backs on the Lord. And, and, so, and so with that in mind, we, we can just start to put things together in terms of how things will begin for God's choice king. And how things begin for God's choice king is that the context for his initial ministry, for David's initial ministry, for David's initial uh, engagement in the royal sphere, if you like, is that he comes into this context of God's judgment. And as we think about what that means pointing forward for us, we can feel the compulsion that's here driving us toward the reality of who Christ is. Jesus, Jesus didn't come into our world, did he? And in the, in the glories of who he ultimately will return to show himself to be, he didn't come in those kind of glories. He came in the context of our pain and our hurt, which ultimately is a reflection of God's judgment upon us and our sin. But Jesus can, can be saying things like, I didn't come for those who don't need a doctor, but I came for the sick. I came for the lost. I came uh, for those overturned sheep who are like sheep without a shepherd. I came for those who are in this place of affliction and trouble, all because we've turned our back on the living God. This is how things begin for God's choice king. We know David's life. We see Jesus appear on the scene and we say, okay, I understand. I see him for who he is, the one God is going to use to rescue his people, the one God is going to use to deliver and preserve his people is the one who comes in this context of judgment. Well, which again is an extraordinary encouragement for us just when we consider the basics of the gospel. The king God chooses doesn't come into the context of extraordinary uh, spiritual zeal and faithfulness. He doesn't come into the world in that way and He doesn't come into our lives in that way. He doesn't come into our lives when everything is sewn up and perfect and tidy. He comes to us when we're in this place of rebellion turned away from what it means to live in the way of life. And He comes to us ultimately for our relief, which is, which is what we see uh, happening next. And so, and so we move through these verses and we see uh, that, that it's in this situation of judgment and torment in, in which David is then identified as the one who will bring relief. So this is verses 17 to 19. David's identified now as the one who will bring relief. In fact, I'll just read those, those verses again. 17 to 19. Um, then, so the servants have said, we need to get somebody in here to help you feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is also a valiant man. Now, actually, there's a bunch of ands here in Hebrew. There's like a, a, a cascading waterfall of qualifications that are put here. It's very interesting. I'll read it that way. Uh, so, so he knows how to play the lyre, and he is also a valiant man, and a warrior, and eloquent, and handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your, sir, your son David, who is with the sheep. So, so the situation is one of Saul's need. He, he needs somebody to come and play music for him to bring relief. And one of his servants says he knows just the person. And there in verse 18, we get this extreme, extraordinary description of David. It's quite the, the resume uh, from this unnamed servant in Saul's court of this 
who we know to be the newly appointed king of Israel. So who knows how the servant is acquainted with David? Or if he knows about the clandestine anointing, even that's taken place already. Or, or, or maybe if David, he's just really notable as a musician around in their, in their locality, whatever it might be. However this servant knows about David, or whether he's, he's even being sneaky maybe and, and getting the real anointed king into the royal chamber. Is he a plant? I don't, we don't know. But he knows David and he gives Saul this extraordinary resume for David. So there's this son of Jesse, he can play the lyre. So, so, so musical recommendation, that's what we needed first of all. But that's, that's actually pretty brief compared to all the rest he's going to say about David. So he's a valiant man, the, the servant says. That's the same word of commendation that the narrator gave Saul's dad back in chapter 9. He's a valiant man, David's a warrior. It's the same description we'll have for, for Goliath in the next chapter. Right? David's eloquent, he can speak well, he's handsome, and the Lord is with him. Now, we might think, knowing Saul's frame of mind at the moment, that the Lord being with David would almost dissuade Saul. In fact, by the time we get into some further narrative, we'll see that the Lord being with David is an extraordinary thing to pay close attention to. Here, however, we also understand the term to simply mean that this is a successful person. The Lord is with you. If the Lord is with you, what does that mean? Well, you're leading a successful life. You're, what you set your hand to do, that is accomplished. That's, that's the idiomatic uh, use of the phrase here. So, so Saul wouldn't have necessarily uh, taken a huge spiritual uh, umbrage with this or, or whatever the case may be. The, the, the servant is simply saying, David is, is an amazing person and you need to have him come. And so, and so we put it all together. It's, a, it's an extraordinary commendation. Even double the words about David's greatness, fighting ability, speaking as he's, as he's given about his musical ability, which, which kind of strikes us as strange. Um, but, but David's impressive. Saul in verse 9, then he says, go get him. Okay, so he, sounds, he sounds good, sounds fit for the job. So he sends messengers to David's dad, um, Jesse, and says, let me have uh, David come here. He's with the sheep. Send David here. Um, now, 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 again, we're told a lot in these verses, which we could focus on uh, for a variety of reasons. We can wonder uh, at how much attention is given to this description of David uh, his musical ability so briefly mentioned. We can even wonder how the servant knew and, 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 and what the servant's intentions were in bringing David into this situation. There's lots we could dwell on. It's very interesting uh, that, that David's name is never mentioned by a character so far in the narrative. Saul is the very first one to say David's name. So, so there's a whole bunch of stuff we could camp on here. But, but, there's, but there's something here in both verses 17 and 18 that actually help us see a, a precise way in which we're, we're supposed to be focusing our attention. And it centers on the Hebrew word for seeing. So, so think this through with me. The, the situation, remember here, is one of judgment. So Saul's tormented. His servants tell him that they need to find someone to play music for him to bring relief. And in the Hebrew of verse 17, the text literally reads this way. Saul commanded his servants... See for me someone who will play well and bring him to me. See for me. And then we pick it up in verse 18 again where the English translation actually preserves the language. Verse 18, one of the young men answered and said, what does he say? I have seen. I have seen for you, Saul. I've seen the guy. I've seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem and so on. So Saul says, see for me someone who will bring relief. The servant says, I have seen the one you need. 
And, and if we were reading this chapter in Hebrew with the seeing word repeated, we would immediately be driven back to the way chapter 16 begins. Because, because in verse 1 of chapter 16, where the Lord tells Samuel that the time for mourning is over, it's time uh, to go anoint the new king, we remember all of that. Listen, listen to the Hebrew, uh, literally, at the end of verse 1, the Lord says to Samuel, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have seen for me a king from, for, from his son. I have seen for me a king from his son. Saul says, see for me one who can bring relief. The servant says, I have seen. And who is this one who's identified as the bringer of relief? What's the king that God has seen for himself? The one God sees. So, so we see in which the Hebrew language here is used to give us a kind of ancient highlighter on what's most important. God's choice for king is the one who must be seen as the reliever of judgment. This is who we need to be looking to. And, and of course, that's going to play out very practically in Israel's life, even in Saul's immediate uh, situation here by the end of the chapter, with David. The one who the Lord sees is the one who's going to be the one who we all will see as the reliever. David will play and the evil spirit will leave and all of those kinds of things. In fact, David's going to be the one who God sees and who all Israel will see as the one who ultimately brings them extraordinary relief in a number of different ways as, as David proceeds in his, in his royal reign. David is this one who brings extraordinary relief. He's the one God sees. But we also feel in that immediately a propulsion forward, don't we? The one God sees is the one who we need to see to bring relief. That's what the narrative thrust of this, of this section is saying. And of course, we're compelled into the New Testament where we, we even think of that situation with Simeon. Do you remember Simeon in Luke chapter 2? And what does the Lord promise Simeon? He, he promises Simeon that he won't see death until he's seen the Lord's Messiah. And what does Simeon say when he meets Jesus as his parents bring him into the temple precinct? What does he say? My eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. There's this theme that's carried all the way through. Ultimately, as we come into the New Testament, we're brought to see that if we're going to find the relief we need as humanity under judgment, we have to see the one God has seen. We have to see the one that God has provided for himself as the king who's going to ultimately be the savior of, the, of his people. Which again brings us to the extraordinarily necessary reminder of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. It is impossible to find hope if we're trying to see that hope in a thousand different places. Where hope is found is in the one God himself has set up as the one we look to for relief. God sees in Christ, he's the one who's been provided for our relief. And as we see, as we look to Christ, we are finding the relief that we so climactically need. And it's relief that, that exists on multiple levels. It exists uh, just, just on the level of, of self-justification having to be gone and the, and the judgment that we're under being re relieved. Guilt is gone in Christ. There's obvious relief that's going to come to Saul in this passage as the torment of judgment is, is undone, in a sense, by David's presence. Now, that's not the final word for Saul. He's still going to continue to spiral. But David's immediate presence brings relief from the judgment judgment of God, that is the relief that Christ brings for us. He brings us into this place of rest and company with God's people, ultimately into the kingdom of light, rescued from the kingdom of darkness. And so we've been, we've, we've been talking about this this week, or uh, last few weeks at home. This summer we've decided to really work at memorizing Heidelberg uh, number one. If you know the Heidelberg Catechism, it's a wonderful uh, question and answer uh, theological resource, I guess, for, for describing some main things about about what it means to be a Christian. 
And as I was thinking about this passage, it occurred to me that, that Heidelberg 1 really is the relief uh, that, we're, that we're ultimately looking for and seeing in the Lord Jesus Christ, where it asks that question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we think, I wonder how Saul would answer that question. Saul's comfort in life is certainly building monuments to himself and having everybody see him as the king he wants to be. I want to be in charge. I want the, the royal status. I even want the religious accolades. I want to be the king of my little kingdom. I am the master of my domain. That's Saul's comfort. That's what he's shooting for. But is there real comfort there? There's not real comfort there. Is there real comfort there for us when we determine to be the master of our own domains? No, there's, there's not. As we, as we suffer under these things, there's not. But where is that comfort to be found? Well, the comfort comes when Heidelberg answers that question in their, in their catechism and says, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own. But I belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on from there. But we, we're brought to understand that the one we need to see is the one who can bring this climactic relief. And this passage from the Old Testament picks us up and thrusts us forward in such a way that we see that relief come, that comes in Christ alone. And so we see how this is progressing and helping us understand the beginnings of David, but ultimately the beginnings of a true recognition of God's ultimate king. From this context of judgment, what happens next? Well, we're, we're brought to see, we need to see, the one that God sees as the only one who can bring us relief. And we have that, uh, we have that being worked out here in our passage. And so, so these, these things continue to come together. Uh, we have... We have uh, uh, the reliever of judgment being, being seen here. And, and as we move then into verses 20 to 23, uh, we see that, that as David comes to Saul, he comes to Saul as this enthusiastically embraced servant, which, which is very interesting to see. Uh, David, or Je Jesse sends David to Saul. Um, incidentally, ju just a, a little note for the text, the, the items that David is sent with there are the same items that Saul is met with. Back in chapter 10 after he's anointed, so the bread, the wine, and the goat, David is sent with the same thing Saul is met with. So that's one of the ways the narrator helps us know this is about David's beginning as king because there's some mirroring with Saul's beginning as king, although David's actually the reliever. Right? So, so Jesse sends David to Saul, and David is, is just enthusiastically embraced. There's no other way to say it. Verse 21, when David entered Saul's service, Saul loved him very much. First thing we're told, he loved him very much. And David became Saul's armor bearer. So, so that's the person who gets to stay closest to the king. Right? Saul loved David. He gave this, David this position of keeping him really near. No doubt because he needed relief from the spirit that was tormenting him. But there's something about David that was just irresistible. He wanted David close to him. Verse 22, Saul tells David's dad, Jesse, that David's going to be staying in the royal court. I'm not sending him back. He's, he's staying with me. Uh, he's given this apparent permanent place we'll watch that story unfold and then and then verse 23 whenever the spirit from god uh so whenever that evil spirit that represented god's judgment on saul was present david would play music and saul would be relieved we're told he'd feel better and the evil spirit would leave so david is enthusiastically embraced by saul not because of david's warrior qualities do you notice that that's not what ends up being highlighted in the rest of the story here. Yeah, they will be in the next chapter, but not here. David isn't embraced because of all those other qualities, but because David first comes as a servant who brings the man under God's judgment relief. 
And again, immediately you feel the, 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 the compulsion of that, don't you? What, what, what is David giving us a picture of? This, this is ultimately who Jesus Christ is. And, 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 and we're, we're compelled forward in the fact that he must be the one who is enthusiastically embraced. Who do we embrace as the one who's going to bring relief? Well, it's this one who doesn't first come as a warrior. Isn't that what everybody expected in Jesus' day? John the Baptist expected it. Hey, why am I in jail about to be beheaded? I thought you were the guy. You're the Messiah who's going to come and going to rescue us from Roman rule and all of these kinds of things. We thought you were going to come as the military guy. How How does Jesus come? Well, he comes like David comes. He comes into the context of extraordinary judgment. How? As this servant healer as the one who must be near to bring me the relief I need from the judgment of God that I'm under. It's an amazing picture that we're given here. And so, and so as we think about this, we, we're, we're brought to see that, that obviously this is a, a paradigm that, that points us forward to the fullness of what is offered in Christ. We need to embrace Jesus for what he ultimately offers in terms of, of the relief and all of those kinds of things. But then there's also a little asterisk that we need to put next to this in this enthusiastic embrace. Because who's the one who is enthusiastically embracing David here? Who, who are the first people who enthusiastically embrace Christ? Well, it's those who are getting something out of him in the immediacy of the now without, without actually yielding to his lordship as king. Right? And isn't that what we see playing out here with Saul? We see this playing out here with Saul. He's embracing David, but time will go on. And as Saul sees that David is actually the one who's supposed to be in the royal context instead of him, what happens with Saul? Well, he starts to reject David vehemently, violently. He's going to throw a spear at David. Things are going to go south very quickly because the one who first enthusiastically embraced God's king because of what they received from him will soon be the one to turn on God's king when it comes to yielding to his royal status. And that's absolutely what we see play out in Jesus' ministry. What happens? But the crowds come to him. They crowd around him. They're like a character unto themselves in Luke's gospel. They're crowding around Jesus, just trying to get stuff from him, get stuff from him. And what does Jesus do? He gives it to them. He heals them. He exercises extraordinary compassion on these people who aren't ultimately yielding to him as king, but they'll ultimately uh, reject him, despise him, neglect him, all of those things, call to crucify him eventually. All of these things are going on. Jesus is still showing them compassion, but ultimately when it comes to following him, what do we find? Well, he basically, he basically hangs alone on the cross. Take up your cross and follow me is not the popular is not the popular refrain that the people respond to. Jesus is Lord, Master, and King. It looks like leaving everything in order to follow me. And as soon as that's in place, then the people start to turn away. Jesus has to say to his disciples at one point, so are you going to leave too? (laughs) And so we have this tension that's already building for us here. There's an enthusiastic embrace of, of, of David. Just like there'll be an enthusiastic embrace of Christ. And really the narrative is bringing us to this final question. Are we really seeing him for who he is? Is Saul really seeing David for who he is? No, he's not. Saul does not see David as the master king who's going to come as God's appointed one. He's not seeing David in that way. As we're thinking about Jesus, we just ask ourselves the question, am I really seeing him for who he is? Is he a domesticated chaplain in my life? Or is he the one who ultimately calls me to yield to him and find life in him as I engage in the costly service of going in the way he calls me to go, even if it means abdicating me being on the throne of my own heart? 
It's something that Saul uh, will never be able to ultimately do, but it's something that a narrative like this compels us to do. We look to Christ in a new way. We see him for who he really is, and ultimately we recognize him coming first as this servant healer who's there to draw us out of our miserable condition of being under the judgment of God, bring us from the domain of darkness to the domain of life, and bring us that eternal relief that, he need, that we need, and then ultimately he says to us, will you be following me? Now will you be yielding to me as king? I am your savior. Will you be responding to that kindness in a life of subjection to me as the master? And again, this narrative just drives us forward in that way in a, in a, in a very powerful in a very powerful manner. And we want to recognize the Lord Jesus from here as, as he himself calls us to do. We need to see him from these scriptures. And a text like this helps us do that. And so we're thankful to God uh, for his word. Let's pray together. So, Father, we do ask that we would be renewed in our looking to Christ. We want to see the one that you see, uh, the one that you provide for yourself as the king for your people. Uh, oh, oh, God, we want him to be our king. We want to yield to him. We want to follow him uh, no matter the cost. Uh, we want to be quick to get off the throne of our own hearts, uh, stop being in charge of our own selves, and look to Jesus as the one who will ultimately be the life-giving king that we need. Uh, please help us to this end. Bring us into your kingdom. Bring others into we ask this for the sake of the glory of, of the great King Jesus Christ. Amen.